Hello and welcome to series two of So Hot Right Now, a podcast all about communicating the climate and nature crises. Our mission is to energize and inspire you, our audience. This series is sponsored by One Earth, a philanthropic organization working to accelerate collective action to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5 C through three key transitions, shift to 100% renewable energy, protection and restoration of nature and regenerative agriculture. Welcome to episode one. Hello and welcome to So Hot Right Now. I'm Tom Mustill. And I'm Lucy Siegel. We are so excited to be back and what a series it's going to be. We've got four-star generals, indigenous leaders from the Amazon, negotiators from the COP conference. But first things first, we, I mean, over to you, Lucy. Well, I'm not going to be in it very much. Is that what you want me to say? I don't want you to say it, <laughs> but it is sadly true. Okay, I overcommitted in the run up to COP26 mm-hmm. and you found someone better, essentially. I feel that Lucy is gilding this lily. But in the meantime, oh, I'm so excited. And this is such great news. We have me. You. <laughs> I'm the new Lucy Siegel. Oh, I love it. This is the new Lucy Siegel, Sam Lee. Hello. Uh, Sam Lee, would you like to introduce yourself and who you are? I would love that. Okay. I'm Sam. I'm a musician, singer, folk singer, song collector, environmental campaigner and writer. And it will be an absolute joy. Lucy. You don't know I that. You don't know it's going to be a joy. I have a feeling that joy is about to become the journey so just for anybody who hasn't quite grasped what's going on i don't know what's going on this is season two of so hot right now (laughs) which is a podcast that me and lucy did a couple of years ago and now we're back but lucy's too important to do it so she's going to be here sometimes but amazing samily is stepping in to help me ramble through meeting lots of amazing people we're here to hold your hand tom thank you so much what lovely hands you both have I should say. So this season, the reason we're doing it now and not waiting until Lucy is more free is because this November witnessed a gathering of tens of thousands of fascinating people. And we wanted to use that opportunity for the COP26 meetings, which are now done and dusted. But we went up not to ask them about COP, not to ask them about what they were there to do, but to ask them about their lives, who they were, to take the opportunity of these humans being here and especially to talk to people who you don't normally hear from about the climate and nature crises. Sam and I have a long-standing friendship. In fact... Bromance. Yes, a bromance, i An enviro-bromance. It's an enviro-bromance. Basically, we became friends and Sam told me about this amazing thing he does when he goes and sings with nightingales in the countryside. And he has these trees that he knows nightingales come back to year after year. And he walks out and he waits for the sun to set and the nightingales to start singing. And then he sings with the nightingales. And he invited me to come along to see it. And I asked this woman that I really fancied if she'd like to come too. And she did. And we got together. And now she's my wife. And we got married. And it's all down to Sam. Amazing. Basically, after that, he had to give me the slot in the podcast. So the truth is I've been ousted. Yes, you have. But in a really feeble and half-hearted way because... you. You're here. I'm, I'm here. I'm keeping I won't a seat warm for you. Don't you worry, Lucy. You come back any time. And I feel that the haphazard introduction to this kind of reflects the tone of the podcast in general. So what happened after Sam kindly agreed to join us and Lucy brutally ditched us, she went off to COP to do big, important things. And Sam and I went to COP and sort of wandered around meeting really wonderful people. And unlike season one, where we were like, 
who are the big important names that everyone knows and we should interview them because everyone knows that they're important people to talk to. We wanted to speak to people who you don't necessarily normally hear from. At like a super basic level, we went to a meeting called COP26, the 26th annual meeting, which is hosted by the United Nations that moves from different host countries every year, which is convened to try to figure out how to mitigate and reduce and stop climate change. But that's the blue zone where all the diplomats and the people making decisions were. But around it, there were all these other things, fringe events, marches, people just going to sort of witness it from outside, people who couldn't get tickets to go in. The amazing thing is the COP is hundreds, thousands of people have turned up all with a sense of purpose to be there. And sometimes it was really small. Sometimes there was no purpose just to be present. We think of it as these delegates and politicians, but actually there's a cultural circus. It's like a Glastonbury festival. Yeah. And it made for an amazing place to encounter and seek out stories. I mean, a lot of you listeners are probably kind of wondering, what is it? Is it something that we saw in the newspapers? It was lots of politicians, but actually COP was much more than that. Yeah, there was negotiating. There was the zones where there lots of conversations about policy were being decided. But around that, in these concentric kind of onion rings beyond it, a sort of exposition, like one of those great crystal palaces of what the future can look like, what it can sound like, what it can drive like, what it can feel like, how to live a more kind of environmentally sound life. And we went there to give you a chance to listen and hear what it was like and meet some of the people who'd congregated there. And COP is the biggest conference on the planet, as far as I'm aware. Is that right? Yeah, that it's, yeah There it is. is nothing quite yeah. as big as it. It's huge. Yeah. What's the difference between a blue zone and a green zone? The green zone is like how you described. So all of this really is about how do you stabilise global temperature rise, 1.5. But what 1. does it 5 feel? 1.5 degrees Celsius, sorry, yeah. scientists. Oh my God, so boring. But okay. what does it feel to live yeah. like 1.5 degrees Celsius? And what will the technology be which will enable it? What will life feel like? So that's all sort of in the green zone, the great exhibition you were sort of referencing. And then the blue zone is where all of this number crunching, all of this negotiation, all of this diplomacy, wrangling takes place. So each country has a pavilion. I can't say that I saw many of them. And it was also really hard to navigate your way around the blue zone because it's so huge. But it, this is all these like little <laughs> rooms everywhere. And then there's these huge plenary halls. What is a plenary? So the plenary, I think, is when they come up with what I would term like a piece of policy, which then feeds into the side agreement but mm -hmm. not the main agreement uh -huh. so forestry and nature-based solutions which you like tom oh i do yeah you do like those was a big theme of this cop for mm. the first time yes and there was so much to absorb and it was like and also every person you spoke to would be like oh go and talk to this person if you had a question you could just mm. go and ask anyone i mean it was just like it was a bit like being in a theme park for like climate and nature and each newspaper had well, not each newspaper. The Times and the New York Times had hubs. They were very different. The Times mm. was like a side of a pub and the New York Times was like, like this forest, incredible forest. Anyway, they were all very taken with you, mm. Sam Lee, singing to John Kerry. So just tell me, how <sighs> did that happen? What did you sing? And what was <laughs> when, the, when the Instagram stops, what happened next? Well, indeed. So I had a date that night. We had tickets to go and see Simon Amstel's show. And... 
and I was suddenly phoned up by his team, his European team, who are all kind of UK, France based. John Kerry's team. John Kerry's yeah, not team. Simon Amstel. No, not so sorry. Yeah, and Senator John Kerry's. He's he was really keen in his run up to COP to meet some of the kind of environmentalists and people who are working on the kind of more soft nature restoration front. And um, so I, I didn't get a call. Me neither. Who, We're too mainstreamed. <laughs> got to hang out in the forest more. So I got this phone call going, are you in London today? John Kerry's in town, he'd really like to meet you. And I just happened to be doing a session at the BBC at Broadcasting House, and he was in Soho about an hour and a half later. Take us through it though, you walk into a pub. I go into St Barnabas, House of St Barnabas, beautiful place, and they're like, he's going to turn up. And I'm like, I don't believe this, this is a honey trap. And uh, and then <laughs> suddenly... <laughs> was gonna happen? I don't know, it's, it's, it's well, a, not it's with a, him, it's a, it was a setup. A honey trap. <laughs> Who did you think I, was going to walk I, I, in? I had no idea. But John Kerry comes in and... What does he look like? Is he exactly. bigger or smaller than you He's think? He's really tall. Really? Very really? tall. Yeah, very tall. Very kind of skinny and not imposing at all. Real gentleman. Orders an IPA, sits down and we started talking and actually gave me a real insight into the kind of loss and damage negotiations they're going to be doing. Gave a bit of a kind of forecast of what he was coming to cop what, so with. So he came and told you about what his goals were and what and yeah. the situation as he understood it. Exactly. Just one to one. Just one to one. We were chatting about that and I was chatting a little bit about kind of the nature restoration work that's going on and the changes in common agricultural policy into the elms and nature here. What did and he say to you? What's the main thing you remember from that conversation? He's a really good listener. Now, we've seen a lot of him in COP doing his kind of, you know, why am I going to tell my grandchildren type stuff? But actually, he gives you his time and he's really interested and he'll answer your questions very direct. He's a politician, so he's very boundaried with what he wanted to say and what he didn't want to say. And actually, it was a real time for the team. had only just kind of got to meet him and spend some time. So they were really fascinated to listen in to what his hopes and expectations for COP was and kind of what he was going as the envoy, as he was the leader of the kind of US envoy. And the irony was, is that I'd like, I was late for my gig. I had a ticket at Crystal Palace to see my favourite comedian. So I was like, John, look, I'm really sorry I've got to go. <laughs> and they were like, sing a song, sing a song. So I was like, hey, John, I'm going to give you a song. And he's, you know, he's of Irish background. So I'm going to pick an Irish song and I'm going to do one about deforestation of an ancient woodland in Northern Ireland. How many did you have to choose from? Like the jukebox in your head? Like, are you going, oh, there's that one, there's that one. Oh, no, this one is better because... There are, quite, I mean, I've got a lot of different nature-based environmental songs that are kind mm. of old in their context, but tell a very kind of pertinent story, particularly for now. But this one was just, it just speaks about the English power to come and cut down Irish forest. I was like, this is the song. Yes. Mm. And in a wonderful way that, you know, you can do all this rhetoric and all this talk and policy and uh, ambition and targets, nothing like art, but particularly music, just to cut straight to the heart of why we're doing what we're doing. And I think that's what was so strong up at COP was the role that the artists and the storytellers were playing and how that was penetrating through. We're going to play the footage to you now, listeners. Oh, Bonnie, I am sorry for to see the woeful destruction of your honour tree. You've stood on these shores for many a long day, till the long bolts of Antrim came to float you. Oh, Bonnie, for 
I'm sorry for to see the destruction of your I think one of the reasons why that moment with John John Kerry kind of caught a bit of our imagination was it was like ah, the arts is getting through and that's what us artists need to be up there for. Why there were so many musicians? Because music, whether it's in the sung form or just the, the role of the artist to be the spokesperson for the heart. And, you know, John just was like completely knocked out by it. And as I, after I finished singing, I was like, okay, I've got to go. And I stood up to leave and he grabbed my shoulder and pushed me back down and went, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> That's a bit intimidating. <laughs> it was very scary. You've you got know, to let him process his... It's true. Because he was totally into it. You can yeah. see in the footage, like really into it. Did you go any any of the marches, Lucy? I did. I went on the Saturday after the Blue Zone. I went straight into the march and it was just like so nice. It was so refreshing. Mm. A lot of people were saying that, like the word that kept coming up was re-energising. Mm. Because in my brief time in the Blue Zone, I definitely found it draining. I felt the process, the kind of dehumanising of all the security and the feeling that you were missing out on something and you were kind of hyper-attenuated and there was so much pressure. Whereas walking with tens of thousands of people, especially younger people, you kind of felt like kind of going to watch your favourite football team or sports team play, but where your favourite team is planet Earth mm -hmm. and everybody else there is kind of cheering it on. But mm. it was really really surprisingly emotional and kind of beautiful and such a contrast to the wrangling and, and anxiety. But the level of respect on the march and within the crowd, like, I don't know what you would call them, but there's those people who dress in red velvet and they have death masks. Unbelievable performers. From and, XR, the people who... Yeah, are, from yeah. XR, really, the level of production, everything was just incredible. But the crowd went quiet where we were and I was thinking, why is everybody moving? And then the crowd parted to let these people the through, red rebels. the red rebels through. Yeah. And it was like a real moment. And I thought, in the blue zone, I got shoved off a walkway. Mm. On the march, where you'd think it would be a little bit leery, yeah. people are stepping aside to let art and creativity make their point and to express something mm. utterly nice profound. People were in tears. Yeah, yeah, and I was surprised just talking to people about how emotional it was. We're going to play a bit now because I guess the idea that we had and really the idea of this whole sort of series was to give you the opportunity, if you weren't there, the chance to experience what this was like and if you were there to relive it and reconnect to it or maybe see another facet or aspect of it. So we're going to play a bit now. So, walking through Calvin Grove Park in Glasgow. It is a slightly overcast but surprisingly warm day and it is the Friday of the COP26 meeting and that means it is the climate strike day. So we are walking along to meet some people to see what they think. My name is Jan, calling Jan. I come from Belgium, next to the coast. And we are biking now for uh, five days to get to Glasgow. And I should describe for people listening, yeah. you are wearing all black lycra with a climate express green t-shirt yes. with your beautiful bicycle with brooks saddle and huge ortley panniers 
and you don't look that tired considering you've no, just cycled no, for five no, days. I'm not. There are other in our group who are more tired. How many of you are there? We are four. Four? Yes. And when did you decide to come here? It's the fourth time. We, we cycled to Paris, to Bonn, to Katowice. And now we are biking to Glasgow, so it's a bit of a tradition. Right, and why are you cycling here? Oh, it's always uh, a mixture of loving the bike and uh, loving the planet that brings us to here. Because there are other ways to hear our voice. Mm -hmm. If you're going to Brussels and take part to a manifestation, that's all right too. But if you can mix it with some journeys on the bike, yeah. that's, uh, that's very fine. It's not always so easy, yeah. because mostly we don't know each other before. Really? No. So you're not friends who've decided no, to do this, no, you're strangers? No, no, we are not friends, no. But it's simply grown on the internet and then some take part and then you know each other and uh, if it fits, it fits. In friendship? <laughs> and in friendship, in friendship. Yes, yeah, yeah. And why do you think it helps to do this? Oh, uh, because I'm 57. I have three children, I don't have grandchildren. Huh? So I think we have missed a bit the right time to change some things, but I hope there will be some change for our grandchildren. So it's, it's the hope that the things we have, that we can uh, restore it, that we can uh, hold it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And like st sitting here with your bike, watching this march go past, how do you feel? What were you thinking before uh, we came I, to talk I, to I you? I like it when there are lots and lots of young people. This means that the youth has some other thoughts than my father and mother and, and we, because we're always thinking economic, yeah? buying a house and buying a car and then two cars. But you see a lot of young people who think if I have not a lot of things to hold and to work for, it, it doesn't make me uh, happy. And if I see young people who are extremely convinced more than I was at their age, I think there is a lot of hope. Yes. I think it's very important that our generation supports them. Yeah. yeah? So that's what you feel your role yeah. is here, to support yes, the yes. younger people. On Otherwise in Belgium I hold a pancarte yeah. with the text, keep on going. Whole vol is it in it needed. Whole vol. Whole vol. Keep Hol on vol. going. Yes. So your job is to encourage people. Yes, indeed. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. So I'm stood here with a very dapper looking man with his hair and in a ponytail. I think more of a man bun. More of a man bun yeah, yeah, yeah. with a beautiful pink uh, lawyer's, what's it called? Lawyer's for XR flag. Lawyer's for XR flag, which is the scales of justice hinging on the Extinction Rebellion sign. So it's a hell of a logo, isn't it? It is a hell of a logo. <laughs> it's, what's your job? So my day job is a barrister and I help found Lawyers for Nature, which is a group calling for the rights of nature and supporting grassroots activists in the UK trying to protect trees and rivers, basically. And why are you here today? I am here today to support the young people calling for climate justice and also to really re-energise myself and my activism by being amongst them and it's worked. Why did you feel the need to re-energise your activism? I think with the pandemic and people being very sort of separate and online it can be quite lonely doing climate activism and it can be quite exhausting in the day-to-day -day life being amongst people who aren't necessarily into climate activism or don't necessarily understand the scale of the climate crisis. And there's something very energising about being in person amongst people who get it and who believe in it as much as you do yeah. and who want to do something about it as much as you do. Yeah. And in fact, to be honest, some of these kids are way more than me, you know? Yeah. Like, that's really energising to be like, wow, like thousands of young people have taken a day out to walk around here and, and call for something they believe in. It's really powerful. 
I've been feeling exactly the same thing. I've been kind of taken slightly off guard by how yeah. much I've felt it. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. It's like a festival. It's been really wonderful. And what are you hoping to do while you're here? Go on a few protests. Um, I'm going to do a talk on Sunday about nature rights and generally just try and like kind of seed that idea a bit here. So it's not just about the climate, it's also about telling people about the rights of nature and that this isn't just about carbon. And actually, if we look too much at carbon <laughs> will end up actually destroying nature even more yeah you know like are we going to strip mine the mountains for more copper for components for electric cars are we yeah. going to plaster the landscape in solar panels are we going to burn trees as biomass all of these things that we need to have a strong focus for nature as well as carbon but you see that in the placards that the young people have made like yeah. hardly any of them are about carbon so many of them are about ecosystems animals plants so that doesn't feel like a it's, hard thing yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it speaks to people yeah it speaks to people and sort of just like trying to put that kind of general love for nature into like a legal context is actually we should have rights of nature you know nature being a legal person yeah. and having legal rights in the courts in this country yeah which a few years ago sounded like a completely mad idea and now it's sounds traction. like a less mad idea i'm lola where are you from from belgium from antwerp and how many of you are here uh we are with 200 young climate activists from uh, from belgium and how are you feeling uh, great it's so powerful to see everyone on the streets uh, really making like their voice heard so that's so cool, and I really hope we're really, really loud. I uh, love the today. charge that you just did. Oh yes, we do that in Belgium all the time. What was it? Uh, we have the uh, slogan "On va charger," which means uh, we're gonna charge, and then we run uh, in front. We also have a slogan called "Plus chaud que le climat," we are warmer than the climate. It's uh, it's a thing that we do all the time. It's really energizing. So. And have you done many climate marches? Uh, yeah, we also have like a big movement in Belgium. Also, kind of in the start two years ago when the climate marches happened for the first time, we were yeah. also there with lots of young people, like thirty thousand. And yeah, I, I've been there from the start because it's so important. If we don't make our voices heard, then uh, then they won't listen. Yeah. So totally. What's your name? My name's Rowan from Scotland, from the west coast of Scotland. And how old are you? I am 21. Is this your first climate march? It's not, no. I've been to quite a few climate marches. How does this compare to other ones? It's, I would say, more all-encompassing. There's a lot more different people here, I think. Unions, for example, which is exciting to see, sort of solidarity rather than just people that look like climate activists. Yeah, as Boris Johnson would call them, bunny huggers. Yeah, exactly. Well, tell me a bit about your work and your job and how that relates to this. I work in Wildlife TV. I am an assistant camera and drone operator. I work with Filmmakers for Future Wildlife, which is a grassroots movement trying to accelerate action on climate messaging and biodiversity messaging within climate documentaries, which yeah. have an enormous reach and could do a huge amount of good if used wisely. And I guess I'm trying to communicate to people who weren't able to come or might not have mm. considered coming what it's like. Describe what it feels like to be here and the emotions that you feel and what you see and sense. Um, first, it's very loud, which I'm sure you'll hear through the podcast. Um, I feel like there's a lot of frustration from people. There's definitely a balancing act between people wanting to be here with their friends and enjoy time together taking part in something historic and an underlying current of worry and, and anxiety, I suppose. You see that in the banners. You see like, laughing yeah. children running along Holding in big banners groups, handing banners saying, the world's, the dying. world's dying. Yeah. It's very strange. I wonder if like there's this joy of being around like-minded people with this undercurrent of the reason they're like-minded is because of something really scary and maybe Absolutely. out of control. Yeah. I think that this kind of thing, although it does feel like 
we're out of control by turning up it helps with feeling more in control right there's a sense of agency that comes through knowing other people care you see it when you're taking photos that people are really happy to be photographed yeah because they feel like they're they're in a moment and they they're proud like, how are you finding the march how am i finding it I feel like very emotional, which I'm surprised by. I think part of it is the long lockdown and not being mm. around other people. Yeah, I feel that. And so to suddenly be around so many other people, but they also have a shared value system, not just a mass of people, but also a mass of like caring. Here, it feels like there is more of a driving purpose. Yeah. You think, oh man, people care about this in Belgium. People yeah. care about this yeah. in France, that they came here. Oh, look at those people. They care, they're doing something. And it just kind of adds up. But I just get like goosebumps. Like I keep getting shivers and it sounds silly. And, you know, little like prickly you know not tears but like the bit that happens before when you're like yeah, Ooh, yeah. that kind of like slight welling up feeling which march is this the friday or the friday Saturday? the friday okay um, that did look nice it was nice i went on the saturday march too which was a bit edgier, but still pretty nice. It's really interesting with marches because, you know, we I feel like we're entering a time where the futility of marching for bringing about system change becomes more and more apparent mm -hmm. to the point we're probably not even going to be allowed to march within the next 10 years. But actually, there's another side really? to it. Do you think so? It's just the police bill at the moment. And, you know, yeah. the points on that are going to make protesting a really, really complicated and difficult thing mm. with potentially years in prison and massive fines. So, you know, what's allowed and what's not allowed is still a bit blurry. But actually, the other side to it is that it's a journey of solidarity mm. and also collective grieving, but collective celebration mm -hmm. of the grief that we're all going through. And I think that's something that, particularly for the youth, is a really power. I think it's resilience building. Yeah, I mean, that point that you make about the police bill and, you know, this is the marching and the solidarity that you describe and being able to congregate so on those marches it wouldn't matter if you just started crying or you just started mm. laughing it would have been accepted whatever you did no mm. one would have singled you out or humiliated you those are so necessary now as part of this movement that they cannot be taken away it's not like a pressure valve it's part of how we calibrate and how we navigate this very very difficult mm. situation it's very very part of how young people navigate it so it can't be taken away but yeah, it's, it's how we process, isn't it? It's, how, mm. it's a lot of how we process trauma. Do you know that's what's made me so sad about... There's such a difference between being up in Glasgow, whatever zone you were in, mm. or whether you went on a march or whatever, and reading about it on Twitter. I was actually really... Before I got up there, I was so sort of depressed and everyone's going, mm. well, this is a load of rubbish. What's yeah, everyone doing there? Yeah, I saw that there? too. Yeah, and it was like, oh, my God. And when I got there, it was nothing like that at all because yeah. it's like you said at the start, everybody knew what they were doing there. Everybody went with the sense of purpose even mm -hmm. if you weren't like integral to negotiations or whatever and that was a really really important way of processing it i can't conceive of going to cop 26 and of not going on the march it is that was how integral it was to my mm. experience and i felt so sad for alok sharma actually with whom i've become faintly obsessed was he had these very <laughs> emotional moments mm. and then when he came back there was a sort of hideous westminster press conference where they were ribbing him about oh you got a bit emotional there didn't you and he sort of backed away from it yeah you're not allowed to be emotional because that's being yeah yeah, yeah. So uh, we were just wandering around in the square where everybody was waiting for various people to speak at the end of the march. And there was Ed Miliband hanging out, taking selfies with people. So I thought I'd go over and ask him a few questions too. Well, what is your name? 
Uh, my name is Ed Miliband. And where have you come from to get here today? I've come from the Blue Zone. The Blue Zone? Which, the Blue Zone, which could feels like it's sort of 20 minutes walk, but feels like it's sort of 20 million miles away in, the, in many ways. You know what I mean? What's it like to move from there to here emotionally? I think it's very inspiring to be here, and it sort of reminds you of the urgency, the emergency, the need to act, and the need for... Well, the need to avoid blah, blah, blah. Have you felt that blah, blah, blah feeling? In I the think there zone? is a lot of blah, 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 and there is also some action. Yeah. And I think in a way the paradox of these negotiations is there is significant progress. The world has definitely moved, but it is wholly insufficient. Yeah. And we should recognise the progress. I think partly you should recognise the progress because there is progress. And also because I think if we say to people it's all hopeless and nothing's happening, I think people are more likely to give up. Mm -hmm. But I think we should also recognise it's just way not enough. When was the last time you were around this many people? Um, well, not obviously for a couple of years. Yeah, does that feel different? I've been feeling it quite... It's kind of wonderful to be around so many people who have such a similar purpose, but it's also a bit... Weird. I think they're just very, very inspiring. And I think the voice of young people in particular is just incredibly inspiring. And, you know, I was just talking to these young school kids who got the afternoon off school to be here. And it's quite, it's incredibly moving, actually, because it's, you know, I mean, there's lots of other things they could be doing. And, you know, they wanted to come because they care about it. And their business studies teacher said, oh, don't tell anyone, but I think you should go. So they've been allowed to So they've sort of been allowed to go. And I think that's really important. Yes. How many other protests have you been to, climate-wise? No, lots to of them, lots of them, yeah, 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 lots of them. Is this different in any way? Um, I don't think it's necessarily different, but I think it's at a really important moment in this halfway point of the COP. And so I think it's really, really important that the world leaders hear the voices of people here and hear the sense of urgency. And I think lots of them do get the urgency, but the thing about government is you always think there's a thousand good reasons why you can't do things quickly enough. And the trouble is that there might be a thousand good reasons for that, but there's like one gigantic reason which trumps all of the others, yeah. where you've got to act and act with the proper urgency. How do you sustain yourself caring about this and the issues like this? People like this, I think it's incredibly inspiring to come here. And, you know, coming here is sustaining, I think. And hopefully it's sustaining for the people who are here as well. Yeah, I've been feeling a lot of the people we've asked have talked like that. We've talked about like re-energising, reconnecting, yeah. like not feeling like they're sort of alone against these issues. Really important. Thanks. Thank you. Great interview. Mm. Really nice. Oh, thanks. People open up to you, Tom. Even Ed Miliband just opens up. Well, he was trying to escape. What you can't hear is that he's <laughs> gradually moving away and then he was kind of backing off, but I was chasing him. I like it. You're doorstepping him at the march. I march-stepped him. March-stepped, really good. Yeah. You know what really strikes me? A few years ago, before COVID, my friend's niece was banned from her prom because she had attended a climate strike. Wow. And then you've got Ed saying there, you know, about the business studies teacher saying, mm -hmm. you know, take time off. Yeah. There's been a civilizing and I think a little mm. bit of more of an understanding. So one of the things that I did before COP26 was that I spent a bit of time understanding more how youth climate leaders work, like people who've gone through the UN process. Mm. I decided I didn't understand enough about what they were doing. And sometimes I felt quite hostile towards them in a sense of they just seemed to be saying they didn't like everything. So I wanted to understand more of their position. And I'm really glad that I did that before Glasgow, actually. And can you say a little bit about what they came out with? 
Yeah, well, basically, I realised that they were incredibly experienced in UN negotiations, not just that they understand the science, obviously, Mm. but that they really understand how the climate regime works, they understand what needs to happen, and they have a solidarity, they have a sort of system between them where they share all around the world, like they share the workload, they share advice, they are often in full-on crisis mode, they work far too hard. And one of the things that I noticed in the run-up to COP was that they found it really difficult to access funding to get to Glasgow and stay there for the full two weeks. And they're still really fighting to get a seat at the table. So one of the things that we did was launch a crowdfunder just before COP26 for some funding for some people. It took three hours, three hours. People really wanted to contribute. Can I ask you a question now, which Mm. is how can people help these youth leaders do what they do, in your opinion? Well, I would like a way of formalising like a crowdfund and I would like to make it a global resource and I would like it to be just more formal because so one of the leaders that I was working with she is cleaning a hotel like she studies full-time but she does cleaning to get money to attend these things it's really Mm -hmm. expensive and she just didn't have enough time physically between the youth cop and the big cop to do enough cleaning And it was like, that's ridiculous. And these are people who we depend on. Yes. Like we overlook them because they're young. And so we miss their acumen and skills. And younger people tend to be less well off and well supported. That early in their careers, they haven't got funded networks that they've like tied into. So are you looking for somebody who understands international finance, who can make a transparent platform for supporting youth leaders to represent in climate? Yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Thank you, Tom. The thing that's really exciting when I was meeting the young activists and the ones you're talking about is that what an amazing start to one's political negotiating career to have had at age 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 the experience. They've got such an incredible head start and a bit of funds to stop them having to clean hotel rooms would just be incredible to develop the leaders of tomorrow. Yeah, and also prevent them from getting burned out and completely knackered because they're just really burning the candle at all ends and it's like, it's not sustainable. We heard that quite a lot from a lot of the people we spoke to, both for the interviews and just generally about, you know, what do you wish you'd told your younger self? And it's like, take time out, don't kill yourself Mm -hmm. because, yeah, the burnout can be really detrimental. And I think that's that feeling of constantly living in urgency of something that is going to last our whole lives with the kind of adrenal way that we approach this topic people Mm. are burning out and that's people that both need to have healthy gratifying long lives that are pleasant and that we need to survive because we need them to help like our civilizational effort yeah and what was inescapable at the heart of it was greta and the effect that this one young person has had It is not a secret that COP26 is a failure. It should be obvious that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place. And more and more people are starting to realize this. Many are starting to ask themselves, what will it take for the people in power to wake up? But let's be clear, they are already awake. They know exactly what they are doing. This is no longer a climate conference. This is now a Global North Greenwash Festival. A two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. And the question we must now ask ourselves is, 
What is it that we are fighting for? Are we fighting to save ourselves and the living planet? Or are we fighting to maintain business as usual? Out here, we speak the truth. The people in power are obviously scared of the truth. Yet, no matter how hard they try, they cannot escape from it. They cannot ignore the scientific consensus. And above all, they cannot ignore us, the people. They cannot ignore our screams as we reclaim our power. We are tired of their blah, blah, blah. Our leaders are not leading. This is what leadership looks like. It was amazing to be in a march of tens of thousands of people and to think back to the person who'd started it, just a schoolgirl who decided not to go to school and to protest and how this had snowballed into this global movement that does this every Friday and speaking to young children, especially young girls for whom Greta has come to embody their hopes, their anger, their pride, their collective spirit and to see their faces and the faces of so many other people in the crowd when Greta spoke and there were many people that spoke and they were listened to with attention and respect but there was an electricity when she spoke and almost a fan mania there was like a sort of breathing out yes that was really wonderful to perceive and see so I'm just going to play another bit from the march which is where we met so many parents there and their children and it was wonderful because they had made beautiful banners and they'd painted their faces and seeing them all together and I feel like it also made it feel a bit safer than some protests I've been at which can have slightly more aggressive policing and so yes yeah, so I'll just play some of the interviews we had with with the families now. And so, can you tell me your names one after another? Freedom. Tilly. Otis. And how old are you, Otis? I am nine. And Frida? I'm nine. And Tilly? Nine. And how long have you cared about climate change? Since my... Maybe like eight, seven or six. Since a couple of years. What was it that made you start to think about this stuff? Because it's like, it's our future. Yeah. I don't want to like have to fix it all. Yeah, do you worry about it? Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. I just worry about like all the icebergs melting and then a giant flood happening. Yeah, me too. So, what are your names? Um, Tilly, Juno, and B. And how old are you? 12, 11, 12. And where are you from? Edinburgh. All from Edinburgh? Yeah. And how are you feeling right now? Excited? Yeah. It feels yeah. really good to be doing something and making our voices heard, but at the same point, it shouldn't really have come to this that we're missing out on our education to strike and get the government to notice and do something about climate crisis. Like, we've yeah. been striking so many times. Yeah. I've just noticed that your face paint with your you've got planet Earths on each cheek, <laughs> and then your forehead is just on fire. <laughs> so, parents, you are you're not escaping this. Uh, what are your names, parents? Yeah, I'm Lizzie. Andrew. Sam. And Lucy. Lucy. And is this your first climate strike? No. No. How many have you done? Oh, I don't know. Maybe five or six or something. And how does this one feel compared to other ones? More enthusiastic, bigger, exciting. Why do you think it is? It's COP, it's Greta, it's the urgency of the situation. Do you know what I think is really 
really exciting. I was saying to him, or just I remember banging on about it, but like coming to Glasgow to the huge like anti-war march back in like 2003, and just like it's got that like just feeling it's exciting for the kids to be part of a movement. But you know when they go in the climate strikes in. Edinburgh outside Parliament and it's great and having all these discussions but I think to come to Glasgow and see this many people and see all of the different groups of people that are engaged and it kind of gives them motivation as well and I just think they'll look back on this and remember this time and sort of the beginning of them being more aware I think. I mean it's easy to be alarmist, there's every reason to be alarmist and yeah it would be easy to fall into yeah a sense of crisis and inability to do anything about it which I think is why these marches are so important because it makes the kids feel like they can do something and they are part of something. Do you want to tell me all of your names? Edith, Martha, Phoebe, Emily. And Mum? I'm Anna. This is Tom who presents the podcast, Tom Mustill. They stayed to the end, isn't that impressive? Yes, did you see Greta? Yes, yes, we did. We did. <laughs> and how did that feel? Great. Incredible. Great. Incredibly amazing. Why? Because she's so influential. She's an incredible person who has changed the world. Literally. We came here because it's very important. And people shouldn't just ignore it and stay indoors when there's a world out here that needs saving and we're the ones who should do that. When you woke up this morning and you thought about what would happen today, how has that matched up to what it's actually like being here today? It's definitely matched up. It's been better than I imagined. Anna, how was it for you? It was fabulous. These girls are so committed and so passionate about climate change and for them to come here. Just, it's so important to them to feel part of it. I think it's important for them to feel that they can do something about it and they can act. And I think it's been really inspiring for them. I think it's really brought to life a lot of things that they already feel. It's just really, really alive for them being here and seeing so many other people feel the same. I think we get that impression from them, just hearing that Greta speaks for them and speaks for everybody. I think it's made a real difference to them. So I think they'll go home buzzing. I think that's going to carry on and I'm pretty sure they'll be talking about it on Monday at school. Brilliant. Greta Thunberg has just finished speaking. There's now some music playing. It's getting suddenly quite cold and a bit dark. And I am here with four 16-year-olds. What are your names? Uh, Kyle McLean. Greta Grekene. Ursina Priel. Kirsty Ross. You're called Greta? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can get confused. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe yourselves? Inspiring. Ambitious. <laughs> Ambitious and looking to fight for change. And um, is this your first march today? This is my second one. I was on uh, one that was in 2019, then it was a strike for climate again, so it was very fun. How did you find it different today? I feel like it, there were so much more people, so it, the energy was so different. I enjoyed it a lot more. Just keep seeing other people coming to our city to fight for what they believe in is so inspiring. I overheard you as Greta was leaving, following her and going like, I saw her. Was yeah. that important? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. It was really amazing seeing her. I'm such a young activist. We believe it. Just seeing someone our age and so young and so smart fighting for what she believes in just inspires other people and young activists for what they believe in and just inspiring. I was looking at her and thinking, wow, you know, it wasn't that long ago that she was just sat by herself being ignored by everybody and then this thing just grew up. Yeah. So yeah. I can't actually imagine it. So it's really hard to imagine. What are your impressions of today? What did it, like for people who couldn't be here, how would you describe it to other people? What's it like? Just really exciting. It was just a really good energy. Yeah. Like yeah. from everyone, it's just amazing energy. Just with 
yeah, powerful because of the way that everyone was here fighting for the same thing was just so amazing to feel like being part of something, being part of history and everybody fighting for the same thing and you know that you're all in solidarity with that is just so amazing. Especially after such a long time of not being able to of get course. together. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. And finally, like, actually fighting for it was just amazing. And you're an activist, I guess, with that yeah. idea you described yourself. Yeah, I would describe myself as an activist. <laughs> do you feel this is going to help you and, like, re-energise your activism? Oh, yeah, like, after today, I just feel so inspired and I just want to go and fight again. I just want to go and do it more. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and what would you say to people listening who couldn't be here? Just look online and sign more petitions and yeah. do what you can to fight for what you believe in. Brilliant. You know, yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. much. So what I found really conflicting about the march was that, well, at first, if you speak to young people and you say, oh, what's that you've got painted on your face? And they're like, oh, it's the world on fire because we're all going to die because our future is being taken from us. And it's because of all the grown ups and there's pollution everywhere and all the animals are dying. That's it's this, it was a weird enmeshment of really upsetting stories. But then the feeling of being there was wonderful and i wonder if that's because part of what helps us deal with this stuff is recognition that you're not alone in caring about it mm. and so being able to say i'm really concerned about this mm. thing and somebody else being like yeah me too look here we are together we're doing something when we can feel that this whole weight of this global problem isn't just on our individual shoulders mm. that's what i found that fascinating mm. i think we're suddenly we're wanted people the environmental campaigners and people who are passionate about it and i think people are waking up and paying attention and it's really exciting i think what they now know is that we know something about what's going on yeah that everybody's like oh this is going to affect me so suddenly we are you know it's like not just prophets of doom yeah. Just kind of like... Just profits. I want to know what Glasgow is going to be like afterwards, like what the legacy is going to be, because mm. I think there's a legacy, almost like it was in Rio after the Earth Summit, and that legacy can last for a long, long time. And then you have kids going to school and referencing what's happened, this big, like, massive thing. And I just think that's absolutely fascinating. I think the real... The heroes that came out of COP were the Scots, without question, yeah. particularly Nicola Sturgeon, who was just an absolute heroine the entire time. Yeah, Listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. Lucy, it has been so nice to see you. Will you now informally, in some way, bestow your blessing upon Sam for Series 2? I will do. I don't want to leave now, but I can see Season 2 is in very good hands. Um, The best hands and the best voice. Um, Hmm. Sam Lee, I'd like to formally pass the baton of So Hot right now on to you. I'm just custodian. You know, I don't own it. I'm not here forever. You can come back anytime you like. But it's been an absolute honour doing this series so far. Thank you so much, Lucy. You're really good at it. Don't be too good at it. Don't worry. I haven't heard it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I will will maintain a low general level by average. Thank you very much to our guests today on this show, as well as all you lovely listeners. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts tell your friends give us a rating it'll cheer us up and encourage us you can follow us on social media at so hot pod you can also follow me sam lee at sam lee song and you can follow me can't you sam at tom mustill a huge thanks to arctic base camp for providing home and food and sustenance while we were up in cop of course special thanks to carl burkhardt and his team at one earth without whom we wouldn't have been able to do this series 
Once again, One Earth is a philanthropic organisation working to accelerate collective action to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5C. Find out more at One Earth. So Hot Right Now was hosted by me, Sam Lee. And me, Tom Mustill. It's produced by Picture Zero Productions and Pod Monkey. This episode was recorded on the streets of Glasgow by Jack Fillimore and it's Soho Radio Studios. The series producer is Lindsay. Say hello to our listeners, Lindsay. The executive producers are Matt and Scott at Podmonkey and also the wonderful Fergus Haycock at Picture Zero.